0: Hello. You're listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the U.S. economics and trade editor for The Economist.
1: And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics.
0: This week, we're going to talk about China and America, but not the thing that you think we're going to talk about.
1: Though that thing that we're not going to talk about, some of that was going on this week. We expected a deal to be announced, possibly by March 1st, as what we were promised, That much didn't happen. We think that there's a summit that's going to be coming at some point. That's what President Trump tweeted out. But we're still waiting on the details of what's actually going to be talked about at that summit.
0: Thanks to the diligent trade reporters out there, we do have some details of what might be in this deal. We think that it's probably going to include some purchases of soybeans. Good news for the farmers that we spoke to last week. We also think that it is going to include stuff on subsidies, on non-tariff barriers, on services, on currency. And interestingly, there's some detail that's been announced by Robert Lighthizer, the United States trade representative, on what an enforcement mechanism for this deal could look like. Here's Bob Lighthizer.
2: The, at the vice ministerial level, there will be um, quarterly meetings, and then there'll be semi-annual meetings at the ministerial level. That would be me and, and the vice premier, who is my counterpart in this. And the idea is two things. One Individual companies will come to us with complaints about practices and we'll be able to work those through the process. In many cases, those are going to have to be anonymous because companies are afraid to come forward because they know what will happen if they do. They'll have real-world effects that will be negative. And then in addition to that, there'll be systemic problems where we will see patterns developing and series of things that we that we disagree with and we will bring those through the process Hopefully, in most cases, they'll be resolved at the first or second level. If not, they'll be resolved at my level. And if if there's disagreement at my level, then the United States would expect to act proportionately but unilaterally to insist on enforcement.
1: What we are going to talk about this week is another way of resolving disputes, the way disputes have effectively been resolved in the WTO system for the last 25 years.
0: On February 28th, hot off the press came a ruling from a panel of judges at the World Trade Organization. They were giving a ruling on a complaint that the Americans made about the Chinese and the amount of agriculture subsidies they were handing out to their farmers.
1: So this was a dispute filed at the very end of the Obama administration back in 2016. It involved allegations that the Chinese were providing too much support to farmers of rice, corn and wheat. And the Trump administration picked up on this dispute, and they've been essentially arguing it on behalf of the United States for the last couple of years.
0: Before we get into the weeds of the dispute, let's talk a bit about the context here. Essentially, America doesn't produce that much rice. Rice is not not the big one of these three crops. But Americans do produce a lot of corn and a lot of wheat.
1: So I went out and looked at the data. And This is about wheat and corn. They're not soybeans in terms of the amount of exports. Soybeans are in a class by themselves in terms of agricultural products. But by the late 2000s, the United States was exporting more than $10 billion a year of both wheat and corn to the world. And an increasing chunk of that was going to China. 2011, 2012, there was over a billion dollars of U.S. exports of both corn and wheat that was going to China. It was growing demand. But then all of a sudden, those exports essentially stopped. And by 2015, 2016, the U.S. was exporting only around $100, $200 million worth of those crops each year. And so that's when the Obama administration filed this dispute.
0: The allegation is that these American farmers lost out because the Chinese government was providing so much support to their farmers that the playing field was unlevel. It wasn't fair. They were getting this help, and that was shutting out American farmers from the Chinese market.
1: So I looked at the data. You spent a good chunk of time reading over the WTO's panel report in this case. What is this all about?
0: Yeah, I can confirm that it is a page turner. So first, I should explain the, a bit more about the rules of the World Trade Organization relating to agriculture. Essentially, there are two ways in which it's okay to give support to your farmers. The first is if it's in a very non-distortive way that perhaps helps the environment. So if you, if you want to help with conservation, then, then payments to your farmers are fine. There aren't limits on that. The other way it's okay is if it's beneath a certain amount. So if you're China, you can give farmers whatever you want as long as the value of that help is worth less than 8.5% of the value of total production. It's called a de minimis level. If your support is underneath that, then you're fine.
1: And I'm just going to stop you here because there's 8.5% for China. It's slightly less than what all the other developing countries out there are allowed to give. That's 10%. And it's slightly more than what the richer countries like the United States are allowed to give, which is only 5% of the value of their production.
0: Right. So China has these limits. And the allegation is that they broke the limits, that they gave more support than this 8.5% that they were allowed. And also, the way that they did it was in a very distortive way. The payments were tied to the crops. They sent really bad signals to farmers, and they were particularly harmful to the American farmers who wanted to be able to supply the Chinese market.
1: Okay, so that's the theory. But what were they actually doing in these markets for corn, wheat, and rice?
0: The Chinese had something called a temporary reserve program. Um, And what that is is the Chinese government said hey, farmers, we want to help you out. We're going to give you this price for your crop. The farmer said, well, that's great. We are going to switch to those crops and we're going to produce loads. Essentially, the Chinese government ended up having to buy a lot of those crops and it was it was fairly distortive.
1: And one of the interesting arguments in the case, I, I did read it too, that the Chinese government gave was, at least for the case of corn, they recognized that they had made this mistake and in 2016 changed up their program entirely, made it less trade distortive, said we're no longer going to tie these payments to price market signals. We're just going to give direct payments to, to farmers. That was sort of a mea culpa that they'd realized that they had screwed up.
0: Yeah. And to to be fair, they also said that they had reformed their other programs. And, you know, one of the issues with this type of case is that it's very difficult to keep track of all these different kinds of policies. If the policy changes and you've got a dispute about the old policy, then it's very difficult to pin down what's actually going on.
1: So the Chinese said they changed their policies and the Americans obviously disagreed. But what else were they disputing and how did the panel actually rule in this case?
0: one of the disputes was about the way that you actually calculate the amount of support being given. One of the arguments the Chinese was making was that, oh, well, the amount of support is only equal to the amount of the amount of produce that we actually bought, right? That That's the, the value of the support. And the Americans are saying, no, you know, you need to count all of eligible production. So even the stuff that wasn't bought by the government, but that could have been, that still counts as support the prices for those crops were still being supported. The panel ruled, ultimately, with the U.S., it didn't rule on corn because the panel said, yep, fine, you already removed that one. But on rice and wheat, the panel said, yep, you broke the limits. You provided too much support. And some of the numbers were on the order of 30%, right? So well above this 8.5% level of support that yeah, was allowed.
1: They said somewhere between 13 and 30% of the value of, of Chinese production for rice and wheat. And so effectively, at least for those products, China lost the case.
0: I'm not sure I would recommend that our listeners go and read this report, but there were some really interesting things in it that, that I enjoyed reading about. So one was this thing that I just mentioned about how it's, you know, some of the things being disputed were just made it really difficult to adjudicate. So are the programs still in place? In China, I think that's a more general issue. It's very difficult sometimes to work out what actually is policy because some of it isn't written down. Another thing that was you know, in contention was the value of the amount of production. So there's this limit of eight and a half percent of the value of production. And there, were, there was a dispute over how much of the different kinds of rice China was actually producing, which, which obviously matters for, for whether you've broken that limit. If you're somewhere where data isn't great, where transparency is an issue, then resolving these disputes can be really tricky.
1: Stepping back from the particular elements of this case, what I thought was really interesting is this was the first case that anybody has brought against China's agricultural subsidies. And so this is kind of, hey, China, welcome to the world of having your subsidies on agriculture challenged. Now, interestingly, of course, most developing countries, they don't face these kinds of disputes because – They don't tend to give a lot of subsidies to their agricultural sectors because they don't have a lot of money to to throw at them. So these are more of the types of disputes that countries face as they get richer and as they tend to subsidize their farmers more. But China, welcome to the club.
0: I think the other takeaway here is that one of the complaints by the Trump administration has been that the rules-based system is not well-equipped to coping with with the subsidies that China hands out. And this is obviously an example where these judges have found that, nope, there were rules and China did break them.
1: The WTO panels, they tend to do a pretty good job of sifting through economic evidence and really technical arguments to see where there are subsidies and market distorting behavior taking place to be able to identify that and make rulings against it. This is very consistent with the types of rulings we've seen against lots of countries in the world, including the United States, on its agricultural subsidy programs. One other quick point here that is well familiar to Trade Talks listeners by now. Normally at this stage of the dispute, it'd be quite common for either China or the United States to appeal the panel ruling to the WTO's appellate body, its sitting body of Supreme Court-like judges, if you will. But the United States has been holding up the appointment of those judges, and we now have so few of them on the roster that it's unclear whether an appeal could actually happen if either side even wanted it to. And of course, for more on the appellate body debacle, we'd invite listeners to go listen to episode 60.
2: The other point
0: I found interesting when reading through some of the other documents that that came out this week was the contrast in the approach of China and India. You just said that that often countries don't hand out massive subsidies to, to the agricultural industries, but India is, I suppose, a big exception to that. And separately to this ruling coming out, there was a committee at the World Trade Organization so one of the things this rules-based system does is it monitors the different policies that that various countries have, which is which is really useful. And and the Chinese just submitted information on the levels of their agricultural support for the years 2011 to 2016, and and the the contrast is between the approach of the Chinese and and the Indians. The Chinese essentially said, yeah, we had these programs, we've kind of been trying to fix them the representative admitted that there was a challenge india was was had a less sort of humble approach <laughs> to this this process and in fact the eu praised china's engagement with the committee and its and its willingness to limit its domestic support but called india's approach destructive i think we'll we'll probably return to this in future trade talks episodes but There's another actor in town that has a not great attitude towards the World Trade Organization, and it it isn't America and is isn't China.
1: Indeed, back in May of 2018, the United States had filed the first ever WTO counter notification on India's agricultural programs to the WTO, saying that essentially India was misreporting what it was doing in terms of its farm support.
0: And just to explain there, India had told the WTO, this is the level of support we give to our farmers. And the U.S. had said, Mm-mm, no, that's that's not right.
1: But just to go back to your earlier point, yes, China did now submit these notifications for their subsidies between 2011 and 2016, But it's many years beyond when they're supposed to have been submitting these things. And this has been a big bone of contention for the United States, the European Union for a long time. So yes, it's nice to see China behaving better now, but it's been a long time coming.
0: And then the question is whether they would have submitted their notifications had there not been this dispute, had we not had this system. Going back to this trade deal that we're going to have between the U.S. and China – Is there going to be the infrastructure for them to to give that kind of notification, you know, in that arena? Or really, are we still going to be relying on these multilateral monitoring institutions?
1: There's a couple of other interesting points related to this case, too, that I think we should touch on. The first is, even if China does agree to scale back its subsidies for wheat and rice, as it seems to be signaling that it might, it's not necessarily the case that we might see a big surge of American exports of those products into China. In a separate dispute that's still ongoing at the WTO, the United States has also said China is not applying its tariff rate quota system, these import barriers, on those very same products. So until that issue gets resolved, you may not see the trade actually resume. Also, rice, wheat, and corn are on China's retaliation list. After President Trump last year imposed tariffs on China, China responded by retaliating, and it put corn, wheat, and rice on that list. So there's still a lot to do before American farmers can necessarily expect to see their exports of those crops getting back into the Chinese market.
0: I suppose we'll we'll look at this trade deal. It it looks likely that there will be some agricultural purchases put in as part of that.
1: And there's one other really important point here, I think, that coincidentally was happening the same day. So there is this difference currently between China having this 8.5% de minimis threshold and the Americans having the 5% The minimum threshold, the amount of subsidies over which you're not allowed to cross without breaking the WTO rules. This is one of the issues involving special and differential treatment, how developing countries are treated differently at the WTO. The United States isn't happy that China still claims to be a developing country and claims this kind of treatment. And in a committee meeting at that same day on Thursday, the American ambassador, Dennis Shea, made the following argument.
0: There is nothing special or differential when a member that has landed a rover on the dark side of the moon and leads the world with the largest number of the most powerful supercomputers insists on the same treatment as one of our poorest members.
1: Okay, that wasn't Dennis Shea. That was my daughter reading out Dennis Shea's words. Here was essentially the response of the Chinese ambassador to the WTO, read out by my other daughter.
0: Special and differential treatment is not a charity granted by developed members. On the contrary, it is the result of painful negotiations in which developing members have paid a high price in exchange.
1: So there we have it, some good old-fashioned bickering between two trade diplomats in Geneva.
0: It may sound like the two of us are pointing out that, look, we have this multilateral system. It doesn't work that badly uh, in terms of holding countries to account. And and I stand by that. That said, you know, there are some caveats to that. Of course, it's now 2019. This dispute was filed in 2016. Some of the policies have already been reformed. This process is not a fast one. Second, I think that it's worth pointing out that the U.S. sued China in this case. And it wasn't only American exporters that were being hurt by these policies, So there's something a bit strange sometimes that goes on in the World Trade Organization whereby other countries are less willing to sue China. And I think this has been a long-term frustration of people in USTR that the US is doing all the heavy lifting in terms of holding China to account. This is what it means to be the world's policeman, and really other countries need to be stepping up.
1: And to just clarify that point, when you look at the the data, the other major exporters of wheat are the Australias, the Canadas of the world, for corn, it's Brazil, Argentina. Why aren't these countries filing the dispute against China? They're also being hurt just the same by these subsidies. Why is it always the Americans that seem to have to be the ones to, to bring the disputes forward? And I think that's one of the big arguments of the United States and why the system doesn't seem to be working.
0: Or at least not working as well as it should. That is all for Trade Talks. Thank you to the World Trade Organization for keeping it going.
1: And I'd like to thank Ava Zhang, my colleague at Peterson, for helping me piece together the trade and production data on corn, rice, and wheat. Thanks also to Bryce Bashak, who covers the WTO for Bloomberg there in Geneva, and got those two great statements from Ambassador Shea and Zhang. And thanks finally to two 13-year-olds I know for being the voices of two bickering trade diplomats. I can assure everyone that no bickering like that ever takes place between them at home.
0: A big, big thank you to Colin Warren, who takes care of our audio. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes.
1: And I'm at Chad Bowne.
0: And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks.
1: That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to Chinese crops exceeding their WTO de minimis AMS commitments, two is better than one.
0: Catchy.